0: Well, good morning everybody. Please turn in your Bible if you have one, or maybe you have it on a device somewhere. Turn to Acts chapter 13 if you would. This morning we are returning to our series in Acts and we're going to be covering two chapters. So it's it's a, uh, I guess a slightly bigger portion than we normally do, which means there'll be a bit more of me reading the Bible and a bit less of me just speaking my own words, so uh, I guess that's good news anyway. Anyway, um, There's nothing better that we could do in this time than to hear God's word itself, uh, and then we'll explore it together as well. So Acts chapter 13, and the title I've given to this morning's message is How to Keep Speaking About Jesus. How to Keep Speaking About Jesus. And I've decided that uh, after many long years of life, Uh, I've got a birthday coming up soon, so I'm kind of all sort of melancholy and and thinking about, oh, it's going so fast. But uh, I've come to the conclusion, finally, that I really like tasks that are simple, predictable, and have a clear end point to them. Um, Now, I know this; you probably thought, most of us have worked that out a long time ago. We all like simple tasks, but I'm finally here. I like something that's got an obvious starting place an uncomplicated set of things to do along the way, and then a very clear end point where I can say, job done, time to put my feet up, this is finished. So whether it's cooking a meal or cutting a hedge, replacing the battery in a smoke alarm, which I take great pride in, uh, doing some kind of simple DIY, I like to know what I'm getting into before I start, and I like to know that by the end of the day, it'll all be done, it'll all be tidied up and put away. The problem is, as I'm sure you know, most of the, the most important jobs and tasks in life are not the simple ones like those. They're rarely so simple or so quickly doable. The most important jobs come with inevitable difficulties and they require a lot of hard work and time and perseverance before they're anywhere near completed. In fact, even the seemingly easy tasks can have surprising interruptions and difficulties along the way. And so just to share with you um, what happened yesterday, I took a few small minutes to cut a hedge in our garden, done it many times before, and so I was getting more and more confident just so quick with my hedge trimmer, and I ended up cutting through the internet cable to our house. And so um, we now have no internet, and uh, I've got to explain to Virgin why that is. So there's, there's unexpected difficulties even in easy tasks. Then there's the task of telling other people about Jesus. Something which could make losing your internet connection seem like such a small difficulty indeed. Telling other people about Jesus is a task that can be both hugely daunting to get started in and oh so difficult to carry on in and to get on well in, to keep going in. And it's a task often laden with unexpected obstacles and difficulties along the way. Well, fortunately, these chapters we're going to look at this morning, they speak right into our need for help and encouragement and faith to go on witnessing. Acts 13 and 14 are a model for us in how to persevere in our witness and how to get speaking and keep on speaking about Jesus. Uh, They also mark these two chapters the first time that the early church sent out uh, intentional overseas missionaries. Up to now, the gospel had been advancing and spreading to new places almost by accident. Obviously, God was in control, really, but but it looked like it was just a, a side effect of persecution. So the church, as you, we've seen before, were being persecuted. They were forced out of their homes. They, they ended up in all sorts of new places, and just naturally, they were sharing the good news as they took it with them. On a couple of occasions, the gospel has Advance to new places and people by more direct divine intervention. You think about Peter being sent to Cornelius, Philip being sent to the Ethiopian eunuch, but now the church is going to begin to intentionally reach the nations. A new passion has been ignited in this local church in Antioch. They've been given a heart for global mission. So chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And what now follows in these two chapters is a complete bird's eye view of Paul's first missionary journey. A journey that lasted anything from eight months to two years, covered a distance of 1,400 miles, and involved Saul and his companions bringing the gospel to a great number of new places and first-time hearers. Places and people that had never heard this gospel message before. I've uh, got a map actually, which some people like maps. Um, not that map. Do we have another one, Sarah? Oh, there we go. I don't know if you can see that, but just to give you a little bit of a visual reference as to where they go in these, over these two chapters. They follow the yellow line around, all the way around to Derby. That's not the one up north in England. Uh, and then they make their way back again. Uh, as I say, this could have been anything from about eight months to two years on this missionary journey. And here's the thing that struck me this week as I read these chapters a few times through. This mission wasn't easy. Saul and his friends, they're travelling all over, from city to town to city. That The task is never finished. There's always more people who need to hear the gospel. And it's far from smooth sailing. Wherever they talk about Jesus, they're met with both openness and opposition. Wherever they go... Some people receive the message with open arms, and others strongly reject it. And yet Saul and Barnabas, they don't give up. They keep on going, and they keep on sharing, which is why I think these two chapters are so full of helpful instruction. Yes, they're about the first overseas missionaries, but they also have so much to say to those of us whose mission field is across our street, or at the school gates, or down the road, or in our neighbor's garden, or in the supermarket, or in the workplace. These chapters are richly instructive for us because they deal with many of the same things that often make us reluctant to talk about Jesus. They give us a window into how to persevere wherever God is calling us to be witnesses, whatever difficulties or cables lie along the way. So, the overarching question I kind of want to answer this morning is how did they keep going and how did they keep speaking about Jesus? How did they keep going and speaking about Jesus? And the answer, I think, is given us here in two ways. First of all, they didn't lose heart when they were faced with two common discouragements. And secondly, they were spurred on repeatedly by two compelling encouragements. So, My two headings this morning are simply two discouragements and two compelling encouragements. First of all, then, two common discouragements. The the first discouragement that they encounter on their way is that of opposition. Wherever Saul and Barnabas speak about Jesus, they meet with some measure of opposition. Right from the very first stop-off, which is on Barnabas' home island of Cyprus. So even when you go home to share about Jesus doesn't always go smoothly Uh, this by the way as well just so we don't get confused and I'll try not to flit around between the two names too much this is the chapter where Saul starts to become referred to as well as uh, by the name of Paul so his Saul is his Jewish name uh, Paul is his Greek or Roman name and so now that he's truly on mission to the Gentiles his name, we start to hear it more and more referred to as Paul. So same person, Saul and Paul. Uh, but there are on mission to the Gentiles, but there are Jews there as well. And so he and Barnabas, they begin by witnessing in the synagogues. Look at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So there they are, they are witnessing to all sorts of people, getting all sorts of responses. But Luke highlights for us two responses in particular. The first is from the proconsul himself. He's the governor of the island. His name's Sergius Paulus. And he's eager to hear the word of God. That must have been really encouraging, I think. We've arrived on the island, we're sharing the good news, and the governor himself wants to hear more. But on the other hand, you have this magician, Bar-Jesus, also called Elamus, And not only does Elamus not want to hear the word, he doesn't want Sergius Paulus to hear the word either. And maybe we've met people like that ourselves or come across them online. People who are not only opposed to the Christian message personally, but they also are passionate about making sure nobody else pays attention to it either. People who actively promote uh, their atheism or their anti-Christianism. And they actively seek to turn other, way, other people away from Christianity as well. And I think there's all sorts of reasons why someone might do this. Uh, it could be pride. Sometimes it's greed. Sometimes it's for attention. Sometimes it's so they can remain unchallenged in a particular sin or a particular lifestyle. Here, it's almost all of those things for Elamus. Because he, set, he has set himself up on this island as the prophet of the island. He is the sage, the guru, the influencer for others to follow. He has built his identity on being looked up to and listened to and consulted and admired for his great wisdom. And up to now, it's been working really well for him. He's had the ear and attention and the admiration of people in high places. And he is not prepared to let Paul and Barnabas get in the way of that. The way that Luke describes Sergius Paulus is interesting as well. He uses this really complimentary term. He calls him a man of intelligence or understanding. He's a man already looking for something more than the the world around him and the culture around him can offer him. And there are almost certainly people in our lives like this as well, people who already feel a growing dissatisfaction with the world and our culture, people who are already seeking after some kind of higher, more genuine spiritual reality. And, and it can be a good thing that people are seeking these things. It might be we don't realize some of, the, some of our friends, our neighbors, our family members, already their hearts are restless like this. But unfortunately, the world is also full of elamuses, people who are ready to exploit that spiritual hunger with all sorts of mumbo-jumbo and man-made philosophies and even cult-like or occult practices to lure people in and that's why as we're going to see now Paul does not hold back in calling out Elamus for the deceiver and the false prophet that he is Uh, just listen to what he says to him have a look at verse 9 but Paul but Saul who was also called Paul filled with the Holy Spirit looked intently at Elamus and said you son of the devil you enemy of all righteousness Full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, at first glance, we might think, Paul, you're being a bit harsh with Elamus. Shouldn't he have been gentler to Elamus as well to win him over? Well, you see, false teaching is a wicked business. Paul knows eternal souls are at stake here, particularly the soul of Sergius Paulus. This is deadly serious. And so Saul, a man whose heart is full of love and compassion for the lost, is also not afraid to call out false teaching where he sees it. And nor should we be when there are souls at stake. Paul is very prepared for the fact that the truth claims of the gospel will sometimes clash hard with worldly philosophies and those who hold tightly to them. And while Paul's not looking to create conflict, that's not on his agenda at all. He doesn't flinch or run away when opposition or false ideas seem to surface in response to his message. And that's a good thing that he doesn't run, because there is more opposition to come. Verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and come to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. That's a great invitation. And so Paul stood up and then he begins to preach the gospel to them. And we're going to come back a bit later on to the content of his sermon. But here again, as we're going to see now... His message meets with both openness and opposition. It's, it's like those two things are inseparably married together wherever the gospel goes. It's like the wheels on a bicycle or the wings on a plane. Openness and opposition, they're the, the, these inseparable twins. We will rarely go long speaking about Jesus where we encounter one and not the other. Verse 42, look down to verse 42. As they went out, the people begged, this is after his sermon, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. They'd been there for one Sunday, one Sunday, or maybe it was a Saturday. And there's openness. There is so much openness and eagerness to hear more. But, verse 45, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. There's the opposition. And notice again the reason for the people's hostility. They, they may have expressed some intellectual um, objections to Paul's teaching but the real opposition's not in their heads it's in their hearts it's rooted in pride and Luke tells us in jealousy the gospel threatens their reputation their popularity the gospel makes them jealous but Paul and Barnabas are neither surprised nor dissuaded verse 46 and they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, more openness. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district, more opposition." Verse 51, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples, think about all that's just been going on and what they've been experiencing, openness and opposition, which way is their mood going to go as they reflect on what's happened? The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time. Again, there's opposition. They don't run, they stay. Speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lycania, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Do you see, there is openness and opposition everywhere they go. Not from everyone, but always openness with some people, and opposition from others. But they, in all of this, are not discouraged. They are not discouraged. They are filled with joy, and filled with the Holy Spirit, and they go on speaking. So that's the first potential discouragement they, they encountered, opposition, but it didn't discourage them. The second potential discouragement is misunderstanding. Sometimes and maybe you've experienced this, when we try our very best to explain the gospel to someone. Think about one of those occasions where uh, you've had a, sort of an open door. Maybe someone's asked you the question. They're genuinely intrigued and interested, and you've tried to explain it to them, and they've come away, at least initially, with completely the wrong end of the stick. And we might think in those moments, well, the problem's obviously with me. I haven't done a very good job of explaining this. I obviously don't understand it well enough myself or I haven't found the words to do it. But even Paul the Apostle had this problem. Chapter 14, verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconean, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. This is a mess, isn't it? This is getting very complicated and confusing. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. No, no, my message, you can't bring your own religion into this and mix it all together. This is something new. I'm preaching to you the real God, the God who made the heavens and the earth, and I'm inviting you to come and worship him. Verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So if you've ever thought that the confused look on people's faces as you try to explain something of the gospel, if you've ever felt like that was down to you, not explaining it well enough, well, don't be so sure. Paul and Barnabas, they were missionaries. Paul was an apostle. I'm sure their gospel presentation was excellent. But even they couldn't get this audience in Lystra to grasp their message. And in fact, rather than being able to bring this crowd of people to a place of worshipping Jesus, they could scarcely restrain them from offering sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. Even worse, while they couldn't get through to the Lystrans with all of their hard efforts, the people that had chased them out of the last city have no problem whatsoever in very quickly convincing, persuading the Lystrans to turn on Paul and stone him. Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, see they just swooped in, maybe just said a few words, they've turned the whole crowd against them. Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And maybe, again, you've had a similar experience where you've taken great time and effort to systematically explain the gospel to someone. And you think you're getting somewhere only for someone else to come along. Or, or maybe they pop home and they come back and they go, well, I found now this web page on the internet. And, and in a few words, somebody has completely diverted their attention. Or persuaded them that Christianity is just a load of rubbish. And immediately they're persuaded by flimsy arguments like those. That It can be so frustrating, can't it? Yet in all of this, Paul and Barnabas are neither discouraged nor dissuaded. Again and again, Luke tells us they keep on going, seizing opportunities to speak about Jesus and even doing so joyfully. Even in the face of of so much misunderstanding. So a question, what can we learn from their experience so far? First of all, don't be surprised by opposition. We can be tempted to think, if my message creates a negative response in people, if it offends them or if it creates hostility, I must be doing something wrong. Perhaps I should have said it another way or another time or I shouldn't have said anything at all. It's so easy to think we're somehow in the wrong if we encounter opposition like that. But if we're sharing the gospel humbly and graciously, if we're speaking about Jesus with love for the person in front of us, we're exactly where we ought to be, saying the things we ought to be saying. We shouldn't be surprised by opposition. Second lesson, we should be patient in the face of misunderstanding. Confusion is common in evangelism. Even if you're an apostle or a world-class teacher, which I don't think any of us are. There have been many times that I've tried to explain to a non-Christian friend that salvation is by grace alone. And I think they've got it. And then five minutes later, they turn around and they, they say, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. The way to get to heaven is to do good works. Oh. Sometimes with patience, we can lead people out of that confusion and that misunderstanding. Other times, they just seem to go deeper into it. I've got one friend in particular that I've spent many hours with looking into the Bible together, um, using evangelistic courses, trying to answer their questions. Uh, and this friend is incredibly easy and open to talking about Jesus and about Christianity, but he still hasn't come to faith. And initially, I think I felt really awkward about that. Like, um, I guess a mixture of despair and frustration with myself and an awkwardness about what are we going to go on talking about? He actually is open to talking more about Jesus, but I've given my gospel presentation. Where do I go now? But then I realized in the end, these things are spiritually discerned. The gospel's not just an intellectual message, it is in part, and it's good that we explain it clearly, but it's also a spiritual message. One that cuts so strongly against every other kind of religion and philosophy and uh, way of thinking in the world. Unless the Holy Spirit opens my friend's blind eyes, he's not going to see. And I'm praying and I'm trusting that one day the Spirit is going to do that for my friend. And so I'm going to keep on sharing with him the old, old story of the gospel. I'm going to keep trying to find new ways to speak with him about these things knowing that it's the Holy Spirit who does the sight-giving and the saving. Our task is simply to keep speaking and praying with patience, not despairing, not giving up, being patient in the face of confusion and misunderstanding. And the third thing we can learn from what we've seen so far this morning is the importance of maintaining our joy in the gospel. Because in spite of all that opposition and misunderstanding, as I've said, what we see in Paul and Barnabas on every occasion is a sweetness of joy and a boldness and much thanksgiving. And so the question is, and this is kind of the question I suppose I want to answer in our remaining time, where does that unshakable joy for the mission come from? Well, the answer is found in two compelling encouragements in this morning's passage. So second heading of... Of the morning, two compelling encouragements. First of all, they recognize that the gospel is God's gracious sovereign plan. Paul's sermon in chapter 13, um, I I think it kind of, within that sermon, it sums up the two encouragements, and the first one is in the first half. He begins that sermon with a brief summary of Old Testament history, which is interesting. The people have asked them to share their message and share their news with them, and he begins with the Old Testament. Uh, there were, of course, Jews amongst them, and so they would have known the Old Testament well, so it's a, it's a really appropriate place to start. And he goes all the way back to the Exodus, and then taking them forward all the way through from there, the focus is on what God has done what he has mightily and graciously done god is the subject of nearly every verse uh, sorry every verb in these verses of paul's sermon god is the one who has been doing all these mighty saving things john piper observes this text verses 17 to 30 is utterly saturated with god 16 times Paul presses home the truth that God is the central actor in history. Oh, that our speech would be utterly saturated with God. It's an encouragement, isn't it, and a help. Where do I go? I'm just going to speak words saturated with God. Listen to what Paul says. Uh, verse 16. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Listen. This is chapter 13, by the way. Chapter 13, verse 17. Listen now for God's saturation. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he, God, raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who would do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Our message, Paul's message, is all about what God has done. Not about what we think, but about what God has done. God is the central Anchor through all of human history. God is sovereign over every part of his salvation plan, including the part where many will believe. Here's why there aren't just two common responses to the gospel in these passages, um, uh, opposition or misunderstanding. No, no, there are three. And this is why there is also this response of belief. We can be certain that some will believe when we speak About Jesus. Sergius Paulus believed. The Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch believed. A great number of both Jews and Greeks in Iconium believed. Many in Derby became Christ's disciples because they believed. And in fact, by the end of chapter 14, so many people have believed along this journey. That churches have been established in every place and on the return journey, Paul and Barnabas are stopping off at pretty much every one to establish them and strengthen them because God has sovereignly saved so many people through their message. Wherever the gospel goes, even from us, wherever Christians speak about Jesus, there will be people who believe. And that's because nothing can stop God's gracious, sovereign plans. It is God who saves. No wonder then that when they finally get back home to their uh, home church in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas don't say, hey, listen to what we've been doing. Chapter 14, verse 27, they declared all that God had done and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Chapter 13, verse 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Some Christians don't like the doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation. But the truth is, it's the ultimate confidence builder that some people we witness to will undoubtedly come to faith and believe. The knowledge that God opens blind eyes and stony hearts... That is what compels us to go, that God ordains that some will believe. There is no greater encouragement to speak about Jesus. One of my favorite books on evangelism is called um, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And In that book, J.I. Packer talks about how it's the knowledge of God's sovereignty and salvation that drove forth the missionary movement back in the 17 uh, and 1800s. It's that knowledge of God's sovereignty and salvation that has been fuel for Christian mission. For 2,000 years now, and will continue to be so. That's the first compelling encouragement that we find here to keep speaking. That God is sovereign in salvation. He has already appointed that some will believe in response to our message, meaning that we will never be fruitless if we speak of Jesus. The second compelling encouragement, the final one this morning for Paul and Barnabas, is this the sheer breathtaking goodness. Of the gospel, that's what the second half of Paul's sermon reveals—the sheer breathtaking goodness of the gospel. See where you and I might—I speak for myself—where I might sometimes go in very tentatively with someone, and even apologetically to them, as I, oh, is it, there's an opening for the gospel here, but well, I think you'll find this good news. I, I think this is good for you to hear. Paul's not tentative. Paul can't speak passionately enough about all of its glorious benefits, and about all that God in Christ has done. He cannot speak passionately enough. Just listen to how he speaks about Jesus. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 32. And we bring you the good news. It's good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he he says also in another psalm, you will not, not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he, Jesus whom God raised up, did not see corruption. And then he gives the most incredible invitation. Let it be known to you, therefore. And this is the invitation we get to give to other people. Let it be known to you, therefore, this person standing in front of me, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Freedom, forgiveness, grace not law for everyone who believes. Isn't this the best message of good news there could ever be? Could we ever find a greater, kinder, more loving message to pass on to other people? And yet how easy it is to forget that in that awkward moment of witness to forget how this message that suddenly seems so hard really is the best invitation in all the world. People hand out invitations every day, don't they, to all sorts of things. Uh, Come round for dinner, come and watch a movie, come out for a coffee. People stand on street corners with leaflets. uh, Come and eat here, come and study here, come shop here, come make money over here, everyone every day issuing invitations and extolling the worth of what they have to offer. But no other invitation in the world compares to God's invitation on our lips here. Come to Jesus. Receive forgiveness and be set free. The older I get, there we go, it's happening again. The more I'm convinced that one big secret to the Christian life, humanly speaking, uh, whether it's in marriage or parenting, friendships, pursuing holiness, or speaking about Jesus, the thing that so often determines whether I'm doing well or not well, positively or, 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 or poorly in these things, is whether I'm still captivated and besotted with Jesus. Whether I'm overwhelmed again today by the sheer unadulterated goodness of the gospel. Whether, I've, and I'd forgotten this week, Pete was going to read from 1 Peter at the beginning, whether that, that inexpressible joy still captures my heart. I'm not saying that's all that matters, but on the days when I'm reveling in its goodness, I am kinder to my family, I am more loving and patient towards my friends, and I am more confident in speaking about Jesus. I just am. And I haven't asked my family, but I think they see the difference. They could mark out on a, they could sort of at the end of the day, was this a day when he was caught up with the goodness and the kindness and the love of Jesus, or or had he lost sight of that? They could tell. At the end of the day, maybe they say, hey, dad's coming home. He's coming home from the office, but is he sighing or is he singing? And some days he's sighing and some days he's singing, literally doing both those things. And those make for two very different kinds of evenings in our house, whether I come home sighing or singing. It's not about what's gone on in the day or in our lives either. It's about whether or not my heart and our hearts are more aware of our difficulties or more aware of the sheer breathtaking goodness of God's love for us in the gospel. That's the thread that's running through these two chapters, I think. Remembering that mind-blowing goodness of the gospel is what kept Paul and Barnabas fueled with a stubborn, dogged, joyful perseverance in the face of every discouragement. That's what continues to compel Christians to cross the street and cross the world to make Jesus known. That's what compelled the church in Antioch to send out and support Paul and Barnabas to go overseas While the rest of them stayed at home and continued to to cross the street on that same mission. That's what compelled Paul, so bruised and battered by his stoning in Lystra that the crowds had to drag his lifeless body out of the city and they left him for dead. That's what compelled him to rise up from the ground and in spite of the pain, not go home and call it a day but instead set out on a 60-mile trek to Derby the next day to tell more people the good news. Tony Merida writes, Paul could not get over all the gospel meant. Forgiveness, freedom, justification, the presence of the Holy Spirit, adoption, reconciliation, future resurrection, and participation in the kingdom that will have no end. Because of the glorious nature of the gospel, Paul couldn't stop preaching it. Even if that meant suffering, the good news compelled him. See, it wasn't stoic resolve that compelled him. It was gospel joy. And therefore, the more captivated and besotted we are with Jesus, the more in love we are with the message of what he's done, the more our fears will melt away. And the more compelled and encouraged we will find ourselves to speak about him and tell others about what he has done for us and what he offers to do so graciously for them too. Why don't we take a moment now. Let's let's sit quietly and pray that our hearts would be more captivated by our Savior than than they were when we walked in or even where they are now. Because maybe we sit here and we think, my heart's not there right now. It is not captivated and besotted with my Savior. Well, there is one who can help us. There is a spirit who can do this in our hearts. So let's take a moment, pray that we would be captivated by him and full of overflowing joy in response to what he's done. Heavenly Father, this is our simple yet earnest, heartfelt prayer this morning. Lord, that our hearts would be even more captivated by your love. Lord, that we would be even more enraptured by the, the sheer breathtaking goodness of what you've done for us through your son. Lord, may our lives be characterized by gospel joy. Lord, we, we, we perhaps feel so far from this and yet we long for this. Lord, we know you can do mighty things in our hearts. Give us gospel joy, we pray. May it be a joy that overflows with great resolve to speak about Jesus and to go on telling others about him. And Lord, we do pray, help us not to be discouraged or dissuaded by opposition or misunderstanding. May we be deeply encouraged by the fact that you are sovereign in salvation. Lord, that when we speak of Jesus, it is never wasted words. And Lord, that this message you have given us to share is simply the best news in all the world. And so we pray, Lord, use our humble, heartfelt witness to lead people in our lives today to belief in the gospel and to saving faith in your Son. For the glory of his name we pray. Amen.